0: Yesterday, we uh, introduced the topic of uh, karma, who's to blame? And we saw that uh, the approach that we need to follow is uh, an analytic one in which we analyze uh, each of the three components of that topic, karma, me, and blame. And if we want to uh, get a harmonious picture of uh, how these three go together then uh, we need to uh, analyze them all from the point of view of one system and that system is the Prasangaka, Madhyamaka system as explained by Tsongkhapa Uh, because uh, there are uh, two explanations of uh, karma that we find in the, uh, followed in, or studied in the Tibetan tradition. One is within the context of Chittamatra view, and the other is in the point of, from the point of view of uh, Prasangaka. And since the deepest uh, view about the self we find in the Prasangaka system, therefore, if we want to uh, put that together with karma, we need to put it together with the Prasangaka view of karma. So, here we go. Um, The main point about karma, as already mentioned, is that uh, karma is speaking about compulsiveness. Compulsiveness uh, that is uh, uh, involved in the way that we think, speak and act which is under, it's out of our control, at least that's how we perceive it, because it's under the influence of strong habits, driven by our disturbing emotions, and in all cases, by our grasping for a truly established or self-established me. So, we have mental karma and physical karma, and verbal karma. And it can be either any, all of those can be either destructive, constructive, or unspecified. Unspecified means that it can go either way. So mental karma is, uh, comes first. And this is a mental factor of a compelling urge. You know, we have a presentation of uh, Uh, a long list of uh, mental factors that uh, accompany uh, our uh, cognition of things. And some of them are, I suppose we could call them mechanical, that uh, they uh, are part of the mechanism of how we know things, like attention and uh, uh, interest, concentration, these sort of things. And others are either positive or negative emotions. So, we have a compelling urge. It's the mental factor that causes our mental activity to face an object or go in its direction. So, it causes our mental activity, our minds, to face an object or to go in its direction. In other words, to take it as our object of cognition. So, that's that. And it's compelling. In other words, we don't really have very much control over it. Normally, like the uh, compelling urge to um, think of something. I think the easiest example that uh, uh, we can find, especially as uh, Buddhist practitioners, is that uh, when you uh, uh, sit in meditation and you try to uh, focus on the breath, for example, that uncontrollable urge to start thinking something you know to have mental wandering that's what we're talking about what is it that drives the mind to start thinking something do you recognize how compelling that is that uh, without any control you just start thinking something and it could be something destructive You know, oh, I'm really angry about this person or that person, or it could be something, you know, constructive, you know, oh, everybody's so nice, I love, you know, someone, or it could just be neutral. What are we going to have for lunch? And it's amazing how out of control that is, isn't it? So that's what uh, we're talking about when I describe it as compelling, It just, you know, wow, it it drives our attention away. Well, of course, there's some sort of energy which, inv- which is involved with that. But we're talking about that uh, um, way in which our mind works. So a mental factor. There's always energy involved. But it's the, the, you know, when you are looking at something or focusing on the breath, that state of mind or that mental aspect, that who drives you away into starting to think something and it uh, drives our mental continuum to take another object to do start doing something else mental continuum, you know the mental continuum is the stream of individual everlasting sequence of moments of experience you know, this experience and the next experience and the next experience and it's made up of five aggregate factors so consciousness an object various emotions these mechanical things that I was talking about like uh, urge and interest etc feeling of happiness or unhappiness so the compelling urge draws the whole package not just the consciousness but the whole package to you know engage with another object or another Uh, activity Like thinking something. So, since sometimes there's a bit of confusion here, uh, let me just uh, briefly mention the uh, three destructive types of uh, mental uh, activity, of thought. Uh, We're talking about a uh, a, um, line of thinking, thinking something. And there's a whole sequence that's involved, it's not just one moment of thought. And it's basically planning to do something when we're talking about the destructive ways of uh, thinking. So covetous thinking is, how am I gonna get this thing that you know I really think is fantastic and is going to make me happy? And then we go through, make the um, process of deciding Am I going to, you know, try to get this thing? It could also involve planning how to do it, but it reaches its conclusion when we decide, yes, I'm going to get it, work to get it. That's this line of thinking, this covetous thinking. So driven by longing, desire, I want to get something that I don't have, attachment, I'm not going to let you share it, I want to hold on to it. And greed, I want more. And then there's malevolent thinking. How am I going, you know, am I gonna hurt this person? They said something nasty to me and wow, I really don't like that. Uh, I'm gonna say something nasty back to them. And we go through the whole process of deciding to say something or not. And maybe it involves with what we're going to say. And then distorted antagonistic uh, thinking And this is not only, you know, having, thinking in an incorrect way, like uh, there's no value in meditating or doing any sort of spiritual uh, practice, but also it's very hostile and antagonistic. And what you're deciding is whether or not to tell, you know, my partner or my child, that, you know, that's a waste of time, that's stupid, don't do it. So that's the decision that is there. It's to repudiate, you know, to say that uh, the correct view is wrong, I'm right. That's distorted antagonistic thinking. Or it could be, you know, that uh, I'm going to stop meditating or doing any practice because this is stupid, it's a waste of time, I'm not getting anywhere. Constructive is the opposite, you know, well, I feel like yelling at this person, but I'm not, because that would be, cause a lot more problems, and then we make the decision not to yell at them. That's what it would be, constructive, for example. And then unspecified, you know, should I uh, uh, go for lunch now? And we decide, yeah, I'll go for lunch. Neither positive nor negative, depending on our motivation and... You know, what else is going on in our minds about lunch? And if our train of thought doesn't come to a conclusion, we don't make any decision, it's not complete. It doesn't go anywhere. But I think uh, the most common example of this type of uh, destructive, unproductive uh, thinking is worry. We're worried about this. You know, what's going to happen? What should I do? Uh, And it just goes on and on and on. You never come to a conclusion and it's a lot of suffering, isn't it? Not a very happy state of mind. Right? So the problem is not thinking and trying to decide what to do. The problem is that it's the compulsive worry that's involved with that and never coming to a conclusion. As I say, you can't emphasize enough. Identify what is the problem. You know, don't identify the problem as just thinking. it's this compulsiveness that we can't control it. We can't, you know, there's certain things that you do have to think over. But not our just mind is carried over, you know, we're constantly worried, (coughs) constantly distracted, singing songs in our head. I mean, all this sort of junk that goes on. That's mental karma. So... When we talk about uh, mental karma in the Prasangika system, it's not just this urging... I mean, we uh, differentiate two aspects. There's the urging-compelling urge and the urged-compelling urge. Very difficult to say in any language. It's just two different inflections of a word in uh, Tibetan or Sanskrit. So the urging one It urges us, this mental factor urges us into thinking about something. The urged and and that train of thought, if it comes to a decision, like, okay, I'm going to go say something, I'm going to go do something, then that mental factor that draws us into actually saying it or doing it, that's the urged uh, compelling urge. So one urges us into thinking, and the other one it derives from that. It's urged by that to then do or say something. So, from the prasangika point of view, that mental factor that draws us into either thinking something or into do, saying or doing something—all of those, all three of those—are mental karma. From the chittamatra point of view, that less complicated uh, system that urged one that draws us into speaking or thinking that's called physical or mental or verbal karma. But in Prasangika, it's all mental karma still. They have a different presentation of physical and verbal karma. And there are important reasons for uh, why um, Prasangika adopts the view that Vasubandhu gave about this in his system, the Vaibhashaka system, uh, but uh, that requires a very complex explanation about the tenet systems, which I don't think is appropriate here. But there are definite reasons why uh, Tsongkhapa rejected that point of view. So, when we talk about this compelling urge, whether we're talking about uh, into thinking something or into... Uh, saying something or into doing something, it is uh, always accompanied by other mental factors. So you have to distinguish correctly, you know, this object, you know, my action is going to be directed toward this, not toward that, going to think this and not that. Then an intention to obtain uh, uh, an, any, some object, you know, to get it or to achieve a goal, or to do something with the object or goal once it's attained or achieved. So yeah, we distinguish, I'm going to say something nasty to this person, not that person. And the intention is that uh, you know I want to hurt them. And uh, uh, a tainted, uh, I mean, a destructive emotion. If it, we're talking about uh, saying something nasty to someone, like we're angry with them. Um, Or it could be. uh, I'm not going. I'm going to say something nice to them. It would be uh, a constructive emotion, but mixed with. But it's called a tainted constructive emotion. It's tainted with some. uh, It's uh, deriving from and accompanied by ignorance, unawareness. Is the definition of tainted. In other words, uh, um, we're thinking strongly. Me, me, me. I want this person to like me. You, you, you. Strong you. And uh, so I want to say something nice to you so that you'll like me. Or, you know, I'll make you happy because you, you're special. Something like that. So there's a a positive emotion there. But it's mixed with this uh, strong uh, grasping for a solid me and a solid you. You can think of an example. Uh, There are some people that are in a relationship with somebody and they're pretty insecure about it. So compulsively, they always have to say to the other person, I love you. They don't have any control over that. You know, I love you. And then, you know, why don't you tell me that you love me? Um, So it's constructive. There's nothing destructive about saying I love you or wanting to hear from the other person that I love you. But it's compulsive, and it's based on this insecurity about me and you, isn't it? Actually, and this is a very important point. So pay attention. What gives away, or indicates, that uh, we have this uh, grasping for a truly established me, is feeling of insecurity. Uh, Why do you feel insecure? Because you're focused on some truly established me, which doesn't exist at all, you know, this me that is independent of everything and so on, and I'm worried about it, that I want people to like me, that false me, and I'm insecure about it, and so always trying to make it secure. That is the indication that insecurity that we have this grasping for a solid me. You think that I'm solid, but it doesn't feel that way, so you feel insecure and you try to make it solid, which is impossible because it isn't solid. You know, I'm young, I'm healthy, and, you know, um, attractive, and this is going to last forever. But then we feel, (laughs) yeah, which is impossible. But then we feel insecure about it. So I have to prove it to everybody. And, you know, I'm worried about I'm going to lose it. But what are you worried about? You're worried about something that's impossible. That's why you feel insecure. Uh, You have to realize there's nothing to worry about. (laughs) Life changes. Okay. So that's mental karma, a compelling urge. Now, physical and verbal karma, okay, the Prasangika view, based on the Vaibhashikas, Vasubandhu. Physical and verbal karma, according to this uh, view, are both forms of physical phenomenon. They're not mental factors. And we have uh, two aspects to it, and I'll give the uh, technical terms, and then we'll discuss them. They are compulsive, revealing forms and a compelling, non-revealing form. I use compulsive and compelling because it sounds better in English. I don't know about it in other languages. It just goes together a little bit better. Uh, they're two variants of the same word, basically. So, in terms of uh, physical or verbal uh, action, there is a revealing form, a form that reveals the motivation behind it and the non-revealing form, which doesn't reveal the motivation behind it. Simple explanation, you know, the revealing form, you can see or hear, and because you can see or hear it, it reveals to you that this person is, you know, that I'm angry, you know, reveals to others you're angry or you're greedy. And the non-revealing form is like uh, some sort of dynamic energy, it's more subtle, and that energy can only really sense with the mind, and it doesn't reveal the motivation. The revealing form is compulsive. It's compulsive, you know, the form of our behavior, the form of our speech, how we behave, how we talk. And that non-revealing form, that more dynamic, subtle energy, is compelling in the sense that it compels us to repeat that type of action. Okay, so that's the simple first-level explanation, so we have a compulsive revealing form of, you know, when we're talking or when we're doing something, and there's a compelling non-revealing form, some sort of energy that's there. Now, that's very nice, but uh, when we read that or hear about it, then uh, you start to analyze, well, what actually is it talking about? Then you have to go deeper, because we don't just want uh, some uh, intellectual knowledge that we can uh, uh, sprout, you know, spout, not sprout, (laughs) spout some uh, definition, but we don't really understand it. We want to be able to identify it in our own experience, because this is what we want to get rid of. You know, oh, how interesting, you know, I'm curious, what does it mean? That's not the... (laughs) why we want to understand this. We want to understand it because this is a troublemaker. So, what actually is it? How, what, what, how do I identify it in my own experience? And then how do I apply various opponent powers to uh, get rid of this? So, as we saw already, karma is not the same as an action. So, the compulsive revealing form of a physical or verbal action is not the same as the karmic action. So, in order to understand that, we have to understand what is an action. What is a karmic action? You have to analyze that. Now, an action is something that doesn't just last one micro-instant, does it? An action is something that occurs over a sequence of moments. So, when we were talking about uh, the uh, um, compelling urge to think something, it's not just the compelling urge to start to think something. It's the compelling urge that sustains that, it's also the compelling urge in each moment to sustain that that train of thought and the compelling urge at the end to stop thinking it and think something else. The whole sequence. So the mental karma involved with getting us to do something or say something. It's likewise the urge to start doing it, the urge to continue doing it in each moment and the urge to stop doing it. whole sequence. Action covers the whole sequence. So, to use an analogy, an action is like a chess game. A chess game is made up of all the individual moves and all the individual pieces that go on during the game, and the game is the whole thing. It's a synthesis of the whole thing, isn't it? And it's more than just each individual move. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So, (laughs) karmic action is likewise a a synthesis of all the components of each moment of the action. The chess game is a synthesis of, you know, each moment of the moves. So each moment of the action has several parts it's made up of. There's a basis at which the uh, action is directed, or your speech is directed, and then what's called the motivating mental framework, which uh, consists of three things. You distinguish, this is the object of, uh, uh, of my action, or my words, not that one, but this one distinguish this is what I'm going to do or this is what I'm going to say, not that. Then the intention, that was the wish to have a certain desired object, to do something with it or to achieve a a desired goal. And an emotion, a motivating emotion. could be destructive, it could be tainted, constructive. And all of those are changing in each moment. It's important to understand. (laughs) Right? Our intention can change. You know, what we're going to say is going to change. What we're going to do is going to change. The emotion can change during the course of what we're doing or saying. And there is then the uh, implementation of the action. That's Brilliant. the actual you know, doing it or saying it. But of course that is made up of sequence of moments in which you're seeing, saying and doing something different in each moment. Like frames in a movie. Each moment is different, isn't it? And then a finale or outcome achieved by the action. You know, you shoot somebody uh, with the intention to kill them and the finale is they die. If they don't die, you haven't actually killed them. So your action has turned into shooting them, injuring them. So it's not completely killing them. It's actually very interesting too to, to learn all the details. You might be a little bit surprised. You know, lying is completed when the other person hears what you say. They don't have to actually believe you. You know, they could say, you know, I, I, what did you say? I didn't hear you. Or I heard you incorrectly. Or, um, you know, I don't believe you. That's stupid what you said. Nevertheless, they understood what you said. You communicated your lie. Hmm. Okay. So, the uh, results and the intensity of the results will vary depending on the completeness of uh, all these factors. So, another word for karmic action, the technical word that's used, is a, a pathway of karma, a karmic path. That's the action. And it's made up of all these parts, lasts over a sequence of time, and all the parts change each moment during that sequence. That's the action. Karma is not that. So, what is karma? So Now you have to think. Actually, throughout all of this action, there's a body of a person and the speech of a person that's committing the action. Now we get closer to what karma is talking about. So, this is quite subtle, what we're talking about here. So, the compulsive revealing form is the changing shape of the body or the changing sound of the voice during the course of the karmic pathway of the karmic action, during the whole thing. So the changing shape of your body as you are hitting somebody. It's changing from moment to moment. There's a certain shape that your body takes in each moment as you're doing it. That's what the revealing form is. That shape, you know, of punching somebody that reveals that there's anger behind it. And the changing sound of your voice as you shout at somebody with anger reveals that there's anger. So, uh, that revealing form, the shape of the body or the sound of the voice, can be destructive, or tainted constructive, or unspecified, depending on the intention and emotion that's part of the karmic pathway, of the karmic action. So, what do we have now, in the, uh, so far in our analysis? What we have is that uh, in every moment, during the course of an action, or the course of, uh, you know, f- whether it's physical or verbal, we have now three things. We have the uh, karmic pathway, remember, which was made of all those parts. The basis, the intention, the distinguishing, the emotion, the, uh, how we uh, implement and stuff. So all of that so are that involved with the actions. You have the action. And we have the urged compelling urge that drives it from moment to moment through the course of the action. And we have the compulsive shape of the body or the compulsive sound of the voice that is committing the action. Three parts. One of them has many parts to it. Okay? Digest that for a moment. There's three things going on: there's the action while we're acting. This revealing form only lasts as long as the action lasts. There's the action, which includes the intention and the emotion, and uh, you know what we're doing, whether we're doing something or not. So that action, the compelling urge that drives it to go on from moment to moment. Or to stop to start it, to continue it, to stop it, and the shape of the body and the sound of the voice that is doing it. Of course it's going to be me as well, but that we'll get to. <laughs> right? Action, urge that's driving it, shape of the body that's doing it, sound of the voice that's saying it. And they all network together like in the chess game. Not that they're separate, you know unrelated to each other. Okay, what we try to do is to identify these things in our behavior. Let's say you want to step on a cockroach and kill it. Oh, you see the cockroach. Oh, you think, you know. Now they have the mental karma. Oh, I, I, oh horrible, you know, I want to kill it. And then you decide I'm going I'm to hunt it down and chase it and step on it, kill it. So that's the destructive mental thought. And now we have a compelling urge and you can analyze even further you know, the compelling, the, the compelled urge, I should say, to uh, step on it. Well, it could involve the hunt, chasing it, you know, so the, the prelude to it and the actual doing it and stepping on it, right, and, you know, to, 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 can you, you know, you just step it a little bit, but then you really want to squash it, you know, so now the intention was not just to put my foot on it, but the intention to, sweat, you know, to, to really squash it. And, like that, and our emotion can change from uh, anger at this thing. You know, you naughty cockroach. I mean, not really naughty, but uh, you know, you horrible cockroach. You know, I'm repelled by you. But uh, then, when you step on it, ugh! You know, what a mess. You know, in my shoe and all of that. And so, your emotion has changed during the course of the action. And then now, now I'm satisfied. Yeah, I got the bastard. You know. So now you stop. So there's a whole sequence of what's going on and the shape of your body as you step on it and really squash it. The shape of your body as you go through the hunt to catch that cockroach. That's this revealing form. That's the physical karma. And it is compulsive. You have no control over it. Compulsively, you hunt that mosquito. Compulsively, you swat that fly. That's what we're talking about. OK, so that is the compelling revealing form. I mean, the compulsive revealing form. Right? Compulsively, it always takes a certain shape, a certain pattern to how we behave. You know, people who are compulsive talkers, they just talk all the time. They have no control. And that's the destructive action of idle chatter, thinking that what you're saying, which is meaningless, has meaning. And then interrupting people with your chatter all the time. Texting them, look what I had for breakfast. If they were really interested. (laughs) Maybe our mom can be interested. Maybe your mother could be interested, but you see, what is behind it is that uh, I'm so important that you really must be interested in me and what I eat at each meal, and you really want to see a picture of me. So, I mean, there's this strong grasping for me. The whole world wants to know what I had for breakfast. Come on. Who cares? (laughs) If your mother is really interested, send it just to your mother. Not to everybody, you know, in the world or everybody on your list of friends. In any case, just an illustration of how that grasping for self-important me is behind uh, so many of our actions, all of our actions, actually. Hmm. So now the more subtle form of physical and verbal karma is the compelling non-revealing form. And this is quite difficult to understand, so let me first read the uh, definition and the characteristics and then we'll uh, try to figure out what in the world is it talking about. You see, that's the real job of analytical meditation is to try to figure out what the teachings are talking about based on conviction that uh, the Buddha was not just speaking nonsense, that he spoke about something that could benefit me, so therefore I want to figure out what this means. So, a compelling, non-revealing form is a subtle form of physical phenomenon that's caused by a strong, destructive, or tainted, constructive, motivating framework. It's caused by that motivation, but it doesn't show or reveal that motivation. So, it's caused by some strong, destructive, or tainted, constructive, you know, mixed with uh, grasping for a solid me, motivation. But it doesn't show that motivation. It's too subtle. It's part of a mental continuum, but it's not felt on that mental continuum. In our Western terminology, that means we're not conscious of it. It's not made of particles, so it's not made of gross elements. Like, you know, what you see in dreams is not made of particles. Particles of matter. It's non-static, which means it changes from moment to moment. So it's affected by causes and conditions. So for instance, it could be strengthened or weakened by repeating an action, but it doesn't degenerate or wear out from moment to moment like our body does. It can only be an object of mental cognition like the subtle forms in dreams, and it must be either destructive or tainted constructive, not unspecified, not Uh, neutral. So you, in other words, this comes along with uh, either uh, uh, stepping on cockroaches to kill them or refraining from doing that, you know, oh, you know, well, this cockroach doesn't, you know, doesn't intend to hurt me. I mean, it's just doing its thing, <laughs> but it doesn't come from unspecified things like uh, eating. It arises dependently with the revealing form and it continues with a mental continuum after the revealing form is no longer present. It continues with the mental continuum so long as we continue repeating the action. So in other words, we continue killing or we continue lying. So it starts with killing or lying and continues with the mental continuum after that act, after the action is finished, so long as we intend to continue killing and lying. It ends when we stop continuing to repeat it. In other words, we decide I'm going to stop killing or I'm going to stop lying. And a vow is the strongest form, is also a non-revealing form. It lasts so long as we continue to keep it. If we decide not to keep it anymore, we lose it. Like a vow to stop killing. Okay, so these are the defining characteristics. So then, okay, I can read them. Maybe I can even recite them. But what in the world is this talking about? And uh, you can't find that answer (laughs) anywhere. Uh, in uh, a description that uh, uh, we would be able to understand in our Western terminology. So it's up to us to think about it so I can share with you my most recent guess. All right? Um, Because that's all that we can do, really, is uh, to try to identify it. And as we work with it further and further, we might refine our understanding of what is it referring to. So, what I think it is referring to is a subtle form of dynamic karmic energy and it's cumulative. In other words, it gets stronger or weaker with each repetition of a certain type of action and it continues so long as we maintain the determination not to stop repeating the action. So, we can think of it as a dynamic energy which sort of gives an inertia to our behavior and that's going on during the action And continues after the action until you break that inertia, if you can think in sort of physics type of terms. But it is uh, a form of physical phenomenon. It's not a static category, you know, category or pattern into which all the revealing forms of the karmic pathways are instances of the same type of karmic action. It's not that, but you know, there's a category of uh, uh, how, I, uh, how I kill, how I uh, uh, lie, and so on. And each instance of my killing or lying fits into that, you know, as an example of that category. It's a static category. We're not talking about that, so it has to be a form of physical phenomenon. So a type of subtle dynamic energy, right, that doesn't reveal its motivation. Vows are also non-revealing forms, type of dynamic energy. So they arise with the revealing form of our taking the vow. And they subsequently, subsequently shape our physical and verbal actions in accord with the vow. Just like, you know, from karmic actions, it tends to shape how we behave. Shapes how we speak. So the vow lasts so long as we keep the vows and don't decide to give them up. When we give them up decide not to continue keeping them, the vows are gone from our mental continuum. So it's a non-revealing form. So it's a strong form. The vow is a strong form of a non-revealing form. And so, you know, when you have the purification of uh, uh, negative force, negative potential, then uh, one of the four opponent forces is promise to never repeat the destructive action. You, know, you want to always refrain from it. You regret it. I don't want to repeat it. So that would end the uh, non-revealing form of the uh, destructive action. And why we say I'm never going to give up this vow even at the cost of my life. So why is this so important? Not to give up the vow. Not to lose the non-revealing form of our constructive behavior. And now this comes from, again, my analysis. I haven't seen this in a text. But in the Chittamatra system, mind only, it says that the object and the consciousness and all the mental factors in a moment of cognition all come from one karmic seed and the mental. consciousness and all the mental factors mm-hmm. and yes. also they include reflexive awareness, but all yeah. of it comes from the same karmic seed. They do not come from two karmic seeds as they are natal source, the where they come t- from, like the bread out of the oven. So the problem is, where does the form body of a Buddha come from? What is the cause of the form body of a Buddha? There's something called an obtaining cause, what it is obtained from. And you can't say that a form of physical phenomenon, I mean, there's many refutations of this, comes from the same source as the mind. So you want to have something, a form of physical phenomenon, that is going to be the obtaining cause for the form body of a Buddha. Therefore, non-revealing forms. Think about that. You know, we always say that, you know, um, mind can't come from physical substances. Mind doesn't come from a sperm and an egg. That you get a mind from a previous moment of mind, and you get a physical body from physical substances, sperm and egg. So, similarly, you can't get physical substance from mind. That's the Chittimachra view. So you have to have something physical that's going to turn into the form body of a Buddha. So you really don't want to give up the vows, especially bodhicitta vows and so on, because these shape the form of the body. If you look at the causes of the 32 major marks of a Buddha, each one comes, the cause for it is an action type of behavior you have a long tongue because you always have you know like licking a baby animal you know a mother animal licking a baby animal with compassion so the form of the the body of a Buddha comes from the form of the behavior so non revealing forms this is my guess And you don't want to break that continuity of the vows. Keep them at the cost of my life. So you need a form of physical phenomenon that's going to continue all the way up to enlightenment that will then turn into the physical body of a Buddha. So the non-revealing form of constructive behavior and even stronger and more important, the vows that make the constructive behavior much more stable, decisive, and the vows can get the strength of that non-revealing form can get stronger or weaker depending on how often we, you know, repeat the action and the motivation behind it and what we do, et cetera. It's non-static changes moment to moment in strength, energy. So why aren't we all enlightened already given beginningless time? So, beginningless time means that there is no beginning to our taking of the bodhisattva vows. We've taken them countless number of times. However, also that means that there's no beginning to how often we have lost the, given up the bodhisattva vows. So, in order to become enlightened, there has to be a first time that we never give up the vows and we keep them all the way to enlightenment. That's the issue. That's why you vow, I'm never going to give up the vow, even at the cost of my life. Because we've given it up countless times before. And if we keep that vow, all the, that the non-revealing form of the vow, constructive behavior, all the way to enlightenment, it will shape our behavior all the way and a form body that that will turn into the actual form body of a buddha in which each of the physical features reflects the action that was the cause so now we have the full picture for an action we have uh, you know for for what's happening in each moment there's an action the karmic pathway with all these parts you know the intention and the emotion, etc. There's the mental karma, the urge that's driving it moment to moment to moment during the sequence. There is the form of the body, you know, the shape of the body performing the action or the sound of the voice performing the action and this subtle dynamic energy that goes along with it. Four parts, one having several parts itself. Okay? Action, urge that drives it, shape of your body, and that dynamic energy. So just let that sink in and then we'll stop for our lunch break. Okay, so in summary then, you have the action and you know each of the parts is going to have its cause. But besides that, what is compulsive is the urge to continue it, to do it and continue it. That's compulsive. The shape that my body takes while doing it, that's going to be compulsive. And the energy that's underlying it. The dynamic energy is going to be compelling. It's going to cause me to repeat this type of behavior compulsively. So it's the karma that mental and physical and verbal karma going on at the same time the mental and either physical or mental and verbal that are the compulsive aspects that envelop that action. It's not the action itself. Okay, thank you.